Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Ruby Rogues. My name is John Epperson, and on our panel here today, I have with me Luke Stutters. Hello. Welcome, Luke. And and with us today, we have our special guest, Ariel. I didn't even ask you how to pronounce your last name, but I'll ask you. How do you pronounce your last name? It is impressive. Hey, I'm Ariel Huatsukinas. I actually pronounced that wrong. It's from Lithuania, and I don't know how to pronounce it in Lithuanian, so... Guadzukinas. All right. So Guadzukinas, yeah. All right. I uh, thought you were from Argentina. Hang on. I'm from Argentina, but my last name is Tons. That's pretty cool. Hey, people move. That's a thing. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Well, welcome, Ariel. So we uh, we brought you on today to talk about Webpacker. Seems seems that you know a little bit about Webpacker. And I guess, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and why people might know you and maybe why it is that you know something about Webpacker. And then yeah, we'll right. get into it. Right, yeah. I'm a Rails developer. I started in 2010, 2011, something like that in Argentina. And I work on Ruby on Rails since that full time all day for almost for more than 10 years already. So I did a lot of things for all the for since Rails 2.3, I think, with different versions of Ruby. I had to deal with upgrades, webpackers, Procket, everything. And a half a year and a half ago, I started working at this company called Ombu Labs, and we have child company called FastRuby, and we specialize on Ruby upgrades, Ruby on Rails upgrades, and we also do some maintenance projects, some MVPs, things like that. And over the years, I also worked on other frameworks like Elixir Phoenix or making React applications. So I had to work, for example, in Elixir, you have Webpacker handle every asset. So you have to use that for everything, not like Rails. So I got familiar using that. Then I had to do some upgrades because I wanted some features from Webpack. And in the company here, I was in charge of upgrading our websites to, websites to use Webpacker. And yeah, I wrote a lot of articles for our company's blog posts. And yeah, something about Webpacker and other topics. Nice, nice. Quite quite familiar with FastRuby. I, I definitely remember like, I don't know. Uh, I want to say around the Rails three upgrade time, roughly, I think is when when I when I started actually having to do Rails upgrades for companies or whatever, and there were other people writing articles at the time, and then somewhere in there, I ended up reading one of you guys's articles on an upgrade thing, and I was like, this is cool, and then around I think four, Rails three to four upgrade time found you guys again and I was like this is awesome so it's somewhere around in there I started collecting like my own thing like this is what you do to go from this version of Ruby to this version of Ruby and I like have this spreadsheet now and like anyway I have I have my own process right for doing it 
but I will not lie. I have totally used you guys as a resource repeatedly over the years and it's been awesome. So thank you guys for that. That's been, that's been great. Also. Yeah. As we talked about before rails bump is back up. So that's, that's also awesome too. I don't remember what it was called before, before it became rails bump or whatever with the first, I don't rails know. Rails bounce. Is that what the original URL was? No. Oh, oh. So whatever it was before, that was awesome too, but it's great that now we have that back so we can check and see if our gems work on the new version. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I think also on RaceBump, I think some gems are still um, loading. Like you don't have everything updated there, but yeah. Something. I can see that. I actually have it pulled up over here and I was like, I just flipped open to the page and I was like, oh, that's weird. There's still some spinning things going on. Okay, good to know. So not quite up, but you know what? It's better than zero. It was down for a little while yep. and that actually made an upgrade that I did a while ago harder. Mm-hmm. So great. Awesome work that you guys do for the community. So let's talk Webpacker. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so you wrote this awesome article, actually, now that I've actually read extra chunks of it, talking about how to go from Sprockets to Webpacker, which is a thing that Ruby people occasionally encounter as they as they uh, discover that Sprockets is harder and harder to use now in newer versions of Rails. So yeah, yeah. this is I've got to say this is this is frontline Rails, isn't it? What they're doing at Fast Ruby. This is the most difficult and arduous part is upgrading some awful application that has no tests for it and trying to kind of wrangle that onto something that passes a security audit. This is tough, tough work. Yeah, we we usually, when we work on upgrades, we usually expect clients to have at least some amount of tests because if they don't have tests, it's, a mess. it's impossible. I mean, you end up creating a lot of bugs that you don't have a way to test. But yeah, some some part of the upgrade to from the migration from Sprocket to Webpacker includes having at least some end-to-end tests. So you can test in the front the front end of your application the, the happy path of some things that are important for your business. So then when you do the migration, at least you are sure those things are working because usually people don't do end-to-end tests and you don't have JavaScript tests in your application. So yeah, that's uh, that's something that helped us in our upgrades in our migration from Swift to Webpacker because we had some end-to-end tests, so it was easy to find that we were missing. I don't know some function that was not able to be called. I mean, we were missing some library or whatever. Okay, so then I guess the ten thousand dollar question is because we know that these places exist. What do you do when somebody calls you and they're like, "Please upgrade your." upgrade my application and you're like all right how much testing do you have and they're like zero yeah that happens sometimes it's not zero sometimes it's, i don't know 10 percent, but it's yeah, still super low. <laughs> no they are, we offer first to help them add test because it's something that we, i mean we need your then their help because they know the i know how this should work but maybe they don't have the time to work on the test and maybe don't, they don't know how to add good tests because Adding tests because you want to add tests is not enough. You have to write good tests. So we we offer them first to have some time helping them to improve their test coverage. And then we work on the upgrades. But we don't go straight to the upgrade because it will be a, it will create more issues than what it would fix. That seems reasonable. I mean, do you okay, fair enough. I don't it's all good. That makes total sense. You gotta have some. So so we've already discussed like the fact that like Okay, they have good test coverage on the Rails portion of their app. They have probably 
maybe if you're looking at a shop that has some controller tests, maybe a few, right, for their front end, but they probably aren't running JavaScript tests, at least that's not, doesn't seem to be a norm. What do you, what do you do there? Especially since we're talking about upgrading Webpack or upgrading from Sprockets to Webpacker, right? Which very clearly affects that portion of the app. Yeah, I think the the first things to do there is at least to identify the critical points of the front end. So you can, if you don't have a test, at least you should have a roadmap of things you want to test when you are doing the migration. And the idea is to do incremental changes to start using Sprocket and Webpacker at the same time to handle JavaScript. So you start moving a few things at a time. So you don't move everything there and everything blows up. You move some things, you test that, you move, maybe you move, I don't know, some custom JavaScript you have, then you move jQuery, then you move some external library, and you do that like one step at a time and you test every step. And yeah, you need help from the clients or the people that know the application to test the application, at least the important parts. I'm, I've got mixed feelings about Webpack. I started using it not out of choice, but because I inherited a project which suddenly had to be fixed, which had Webpack in it. So my first experience with Webpack was, was this kind of baptism of fire where nothing worked. And later, of course, I learned that this is perfectly normal for Webpack. It kind of doesn't work 99% of the time. And occasionally, you know, the clouds part and a build happens. But the rest of the time, it's completely broken. It does coincide, doesn't it, with the kind of move between Rails 5 and Rails 6? Isn't that the kind of big big Webpacker change? Yeah, I think Rails 6 is the default right now, Webpacker. And Rails 5 introduces Webpacker. So you had the option to to move in time, but Rails 6 start with Webpacker. So you had to learn. And yeah, I think I went there. I, I, I've been there too. I, it, everything was in a fire. Nothing worked. You start trying to do things in the sprocket way. And yeah, nothing works. At the okay, can I, I, I ask formal. you, as, as a man who's spent a lot of quality time with Webpacker, Webpacker doesn't really talk to me. We don't really have a relationship. But as a man who knows inside out, what is Webpacker's weird obsession with CSS files? Why why does it keep trying to grab my CSS files? It's, 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 at any time, it's not just, it, it kind of has an occasional go at a JPEG too. But for some reason, it really, really wants to run my CSS files as JavaScript. Yeah, I think there's this general idea that Webpacker is a JavaScript bundler, but it's actually an assets bundler. So it's mainly used for JavaScript, but it can handle everything. So as a solution, it tries to handle everything. That's why it tries to handle your CSS and your files, your, your images, videos, fonts. I think we from the Rails world, we think we tend to see Webpacker as a JavaScript thing only because it's what it's added for Rails initially. But it's actually an asset bundler. It's, it handles everything. I know it's weird to see that you have a JavaScript file and inside that you import something.css or something.png. It's really weird. I agree with that. But I think it's because JavaScript is a language you are using and you need to do things in JavaScript. It's not that it's a JavaScript file for your application. It's, it's like a file that will handle your assets written in JavaScript. I think that's good. That, I think that hits on the confusion that we actually talked about, like, uh, I don't know, a number of episodes ago now or whatever, which is like, there's there's also confusion between the fact that like you have the the JavaScript that runs on the page in your application and web, when you write your, your pack file, right? Like that's running 
and and it's that javascript all it's doing is preparing all that javascript that's going to run on your page right it's not run on your page it's run basically on whatever's running on whatever's running node on your server probably is probably what's doing that so yeah there's there's definitely you have to separate those two things in your mind in order to remember it's i mean it's possible to debug it but it's harder because you have to think about that separation yeah it's it's changing your mind how it works because we are too used to sprockets but i like to think that it's it's a it's an asset bundler written in javascript so you have to write javascript but the, the javascript you want for your website is going to be created based on that it's not that it, that's your javascript so if i'm if i'm a shop Okay, so this is this is totally uh, a judgment call here, but just kind of asking in general. If you, if I'm a shop that I'm on Sprockets today, and I'm doing an upgrade, is is moving to web, is moving to Webpacker a recommendation that you generally make? Obviously, there could always be cases when you don't make this recommendation, but is this a general good thing? I wouldn't say it's a company policy because usually That's we have all clients that they need to go to a next version and maybe they are not even in a place they can use Webpacker yet. At least personally, I think moving to Webpacker is a good option because you have more tool for you. And Sprocket is going to be, I mean, abandoned at some point because DHH already said that it's not going to support the newer modern features of JavaScript. So at some point you will need to do that. And you have some features already there in Webpacker that you don't have in Sprocket that are really handy. I know test coverage for JavaScript, linters, the JavaScript war works thinking about Webpacker in not Sprocket. Sprocket is not super known in the JavaScript world. So if you need a third-party library, it probably has integration with Webpacker, but with Webpack, but it doesn't have integration with Sprocket. So if you think need something modern, yeah, you will. If you are good with your, you have using Sprocket and you don't need anything new, yeah, that's fine. Just stay with Sprocket. It's simpler. It's simpler to understand. It's what Ruby and Rails developers understand mo the most. So, uh, but I think I think changing to Webpacker helps you, and also it helps you to I know integrate with new technologies. I know React, Elixir Phoenix, Vue, or any other modern tool for building new applications. Like relies on some JavaScript or asset using Webpacker, you will be more prepared to that too. And on the flip side, are there any reasons that you can think of just off the top of your head that maybe you would choose not to upgrade yeah. to Webpacker from Sprockets? Yeah, I think Webpacker adds an extra layer of complexity. Like I said, you need to change how your mind works for Webpacker if you are used to Sprockets. So if your application is already working and you don't have plans to add new technologies or you don't need this extra feature like, I don't know, tree shaking, cold coverage, linters, all those new th those things, I will say, yeah, don't upgrade to Webpacker because you will spend a lot of time maybe upgrading to Webpacker to, for no extra benefit. And if you have a really big application using a lot of JavaScript, I would say maybe start migrating some part of Web to Webpack if you need them but leave most of them in Sprockets. So maybe you can use both if you want to start using new things. So you don't need to ditch Sprocket completely. Yeah, the fact that we can use both, I think makes this a little bit easier because you don't have to wake up one morning and say, okay, it's time from now on with Webpacker. Yeah. You don't, yeah, you don't have to commit. There we go. Yeah. There must be something good about it. They must have introduced... It can't just be that people package libraries for Webpacker there must have been a kind of other upsides to using Webpacker over Sprockets, wasn't there? Sprockets is getting harder to maintain. 
Like, I'm sure there's more of it than that, but I, I know that, that was a thing that's been said over the years as well. Yeah, I think also Webpack offers a lot of new features that you, you don't have in Sprocket. So. Are you talking about the shaking of the tree? Yeah, no, tree shaking is one of them. I know you have, for example, if you want to use Tailwind CSS in your application, when you use Tailwind, you usually want to have a plugin to purge then unused CSS because Tailwind is really big and you want to remove what's not being used for your application. And if you Webpacker, you have the purge, uh, purge sorry, CSS plugin and it will remove the CSS that are not being used. And you don't have that with Sprockets, for example. And that will improve your loading application, for example. Yeah, t- Tailwind CSS really makes me sick. And I'll tell you why. I was working with a developer last Saturday and we need to do like a grid, you know, something you, you always do, like a grid. And this kind of thing used to take me possibly days in Bootstrap to get it right. And he did it in Tailwind in about 10 seconds. 10 seconds to get a nice grid, you know, where things aligned on the y-axis. 10 seconds. So Tailwind CSS, not my friend at the moment. I actually don't like Tailwind CSS, so I prefer to write vanilla CSS, and that's it with no frameworks, but it's just a personal choice. I, I don't like Tailwind, but I know a lot of people like it because it's, at least from a developer point of view, it helps you build something in the front end without knowing that much of front end. You just add classes to the HTML and it works. So It made me feel like a Java developer when Rails came out. That's how quick it was. Now, the the web the web packer in JavaScript will see this big change. Uh, for anyone moving to Rails, Rails 6, maybe 6.1, who've been pushed, perhaps encouraged. Here's a weird thing I've noticed, and for someone who I kind of upgrade sites all the time, a company which I cannot name refers internally to major versions of its product as the Rails 5 version and the Rails 6 version because moving Rails versions include so many new features that they're actually using Rails versions to version their own product. Is that, a, is that a common way of companies working on things? I don't think when you upgrade from Rails 5 to 6, if you don't need the new features, I don't. that shouldn't create any issue because if you are using already Sprocket in Rails 5, when you migrate to Rails 6, it's not that it removes your the thing you are using. It adds new things that you may not need, and that's fine. We did some upgrades from 5 to 6, and we didn't have like major changes in the application saying, okay, they need to like rename that because it's so different unless they wanted big changes, right? But if you go from what you have to Rails 6, they add some things. If you are not using them, you don't need to worry about that. It shouldn't include, it shouldn't impact that much in your application when you change from 5 to 6. Unless, yeah, you unless you want to make those changes because you saw, oh, that's why they are doing. Let's do that, and that then yeah, you will break everything because you are doing what other people are doing, not what is better for your application. Yeah, I know that a lot of new stuff gets added between Rails versions, doesn't it? And you know, the older versions do still receive some security updates. So it was just interesting for me what the uh, imperative is generally for people. Yeah, we say was we we want to move. Uh, Two to three, I can understand because there were some issues with two and quite a lot of people made a big jump to three in a hurry. But why did people upgrade? You know, Why not just stay on Rails 4? Rails 4 was great. Mainly, it's about security reasons. Rails 4 is unmaintained, end of life. So you, if you want to have a secure application, you need to upgrade because there, then 
the new patches won't be applied for Ray4. And with Rails 7 already in the works, at some point, Rails 5 will, will also be end of life. So, end of life. So, yeah, I think the main reason to upgrade is especially security concerns. And then some companies say, oh, they have this feature. Apparently, we work on a company that they have, they were working with multiple database, databases. And they were using a really old gem for that. And in your Rails versions, you have multiple database by default. In it's, it's part of Active Record. So there's we are in a plan of a grading application to get into Rails 6 so they can ditch some of the code they have because it was a, a known custom gem to handle those things, for example. And yeah, it, it's better for them to stop maintaining that, rely on Rails, but they need to do the upgrades, right? But for example, this application has no JavaScript, no frontend, it's just an API. So all the web packer changes, those doesn't affect them in any way. It's just they want right. to get there for the multiple databases and speed improvements, for example. Yeah, sometimes the bringing of common use cases in the community into Rails ends up being really awesome. Like, uh, I mean, have to call it active storage because active storage is actually really good. I, uh, I remember when it came out, my buddy was like, dude, active storage looks interesting. And I was like, it's fine. I've used paperclip and carrier wave and refile and, and there I'm, I'm happy. Like, it's just great. And then I used active storage on an app and I was like, Oh my God, this is so awesome. And I've never looked back. Right. Like it's just, yeah, we actually have companies that are asked us to make a migration from PayPal to active storage specifically. They want that migration because they know the benefits of active storage. Yep. So yeah, that's the thing that happens too. That's just the one that was on top of my head because I was talking to somebody like two days ago about it. But yeah, there there have been other cases like that throughout the years. But so I was actually kind of thinking as as you were kind of talking about this, like what are the what would you say the biggest pain points of of upgrading from from sprockets to Webpacker are? Like what what are the maybe the most common ones or the ones that hurt the most or whichever you can whichever ones yeah. you think of first. Yeah, I think the first one is jQuery. We, I think all, all, all applications rely on jQuery in some way, or at least most of them. And when you migrate to Webpacker, you don't have jQuery in the global scope. So everything starts failing because not the dollar sign function is not there. So that's one of the first things you, you had to deal with when migrating to Webpacker. And it's not super clear how to do that. I found in my article I wrote, I found one snippet of code that worked fine. It's great. I don't know if it's the best solution. Maybe there are better solutions knowing more how Webpack works in the, uh, internally. But at least from a Rails developer, developer point of view, that worked. It made the dollar sign function available globally. So that was great. And the next thing I would say is having functions in the global scope. If you need, we are to use on Rails to respond with JavaScript responses when we do remote, things like that. And you usually call functions on those responses and suddenly you don't have access to those because when Webpacker, all the functions that you were using are now isolated, contained into those models. So you need to export them to the global scope if you need to use them in your views. Yeah, I find that 
I, I use more and more global functions these days. I'm, I'm going away from containerization. I'm bringing, bringing everything up into the same scope. It's all very uh, democratic. The Another top tip, which you definitely want to do, is instead of bringing in jQuery, why not just redefine do dollar sign as document.querySelector? You'd be amazed how far you can get. <laughs> mm, I, I wouldn't try that. I feel like I feel maybe like document, so maybe query selector all. It's a better approach. I, know. <laughs> I feel like there's got. I mean, think of all those libraries that add on to jQuery that add their functions to the dollar sign. <laughs> Just imagining that being a mess too. It's, yeah, it's actually, astounding what works. <laughs> actually, my advice would be stop using jQuery. But I mean, it's not something that you can do in one day. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, you say that, but. Just Eat over in Europe got acquired for a billion dollars last year. And they wrote a whole load of stuff about how good their CI was. Uh, here goes the Just Eat sponsorship, by the way. Sorry, Chuck. They wrote a load of stuff about how they were deploying 30 times a day and all their CI and their DevOps stuff. And of course, you know, you hear that. You, you go and have a right click, don't you? You go and view source saying, oh, you know, let's, let's see what's going on here. It was non-stop jQuery. And it wasn't even... It wasn't even the latest version of jQuery. They hadn't even patched it up. And they 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 got acquired for a billion. So, you know, now I think maybe I'm not jQuerying enough. I mean, I I don't write anything new in jQuery. I just don't want to deal with it. I don't, you know, I haven't for, for a while now. Um, it's just peer pressure, John. It's just peer pressure. <laughs> ES6 is is good enough, right? Like <laughs> it just Yeah, quite yeah. a selector insert such as an element, things like that, that's, everything works. Yeah, it's maybe yeah. it's a, a lot more, a, a bit more verbose. You had to type more, but I mean, you remove the pain of jQuery. Yeah. And at least for me, that's worth it. For me, jQuery is, a, is going back to a happier time, a simpler time, 2011, <laughs> you know, when my friends still talk to me, when I was still in a relationship, you know, every time I type that dollar sign, I just think those were good old days. You know what I mean? Surely, surely you have some library on your page that needs jQuery. You can you can have a relationship because of that one library, and it doesn't have to be direct through you anymore. So it's just as well we had Arrow on this week because this week I've been doing experiments using DHH's new approach to front end development, the much trumpeted hot wire. Uh, or hot wired, depending on which which place you go to, there seems to be some question mark over the D at the end of hot wired. Uh, but for me, it's hot wire because that's what I first saw it as. And I was I had I had a client project, and I thought, do you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out the jQuery. I'm gonna do this the modern way with modern JavaScript, and I did. And that's how I learned about you know replacing the whole of jQuery query selector. But there are most of the functions that were really really easy in jQuery have now been expanded into the ES6 standard so I'm encouraging everyone in the computer world instead of referring to ES6 refer to it by its proper name which is jQuery slash ES6 or as I prefer it's jQuery plus ES6. So uh, did you use Webpacker or Sprockets? Uh, well for Jordan Verda I started off with Webpacker I started off with Webpacker. I can do Webpacker despite people's. I got a Next.js app. I've done the Webpacker. Rumors, rumors are not true. Awesome.
have to refer to my list of, of questions that, that I had wanted to ask. Like, well, you're referring kind of to your list. Let me, let me go in on the hot wire a bit more. Uh, what do you think of hot wire, Ariel? I like the idea of handling reactivity from the, front, uh, from the backend. I tried before Hotwire, I tried LiveView for Elixir Phoenix. And I think that's a better approach than the one in Rails. It's a bit different. I think it's more optimized. The, the Rails Hotwire is like a simpler version of that, but it's not optimized the same way. I'm um, not familiar with the uh, LiveView. How is, what is LiveView and how does it differ from the um, Turbo? Yeah. Yeah, hot wire is called HTML over the wire, right? So it's when you do, and for example, when you do something in your front end, it sends the request, it sends a message using WebSocket, and it responds with the HTML of the page, and then it uses JavaScript to extract the thing you want from that HTML and replace that in your in your web, right? Live view is a bit different. It handles the state of your view in the server. It's a weird thing to think about that, but it's how it works for Phoenix. It's it's amazing. And when you, you send a message, a message to the server using the WebSocket, and the server will update the view internally in the server, and it will only dispatch to you the changes that you need. So maybe the updates are really small incremental updates that maybe you only send a key and a value, and LiveView knows how to update everything. But... It's also you have to change how your mind works because the state of your app or your page lives in the in the server, not in your browser. The browser is just representing what's in the server. I think that's a more optimized approach, but it requires more work on the developer side. It's hard to think about that at, at the beginning, especially coming from a Rails backend. Yeah, I think the closest allegory to that that we have over on the Rails side would be stimulus reflex, which is which is I don't know, more or less trying to accomplish or solve a very similar, pretty much the same problem, I think. So we actually talked about that as well a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah going back to that, I like Hotwire. I think there are some alternatives that are maybe are better, like at least that one live, uh, live view. But I think apart, you also have LiveWire for Laravel in Apache, in PHP. So yeah, there are some that. alternatives. And yeah, they use different approach, all of them. Hotwire is is really simple. So, my it's brother's awesome. just just started uh, started a software company down in New Zealand, and he's using PHP. And at first, I was you know I just said, what what on earth are you doing? You know, I was thinking of staging invention, but then I realized it's a bit like these guys who make their own eight bit computers. You know, this is this kind of retro web development. It's pretty cool. I mean, is he making money? Like, because at the end of the it's day, it's a startup. That's all that matters, you're not right? supposed to make any money. Oh, oh, all right. That's fine, I guess. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Jeez. All right. So I guess uh, I back, assuming that we all need to have Webpacker and stuff like that, right? To uh, to even make use of the hot wire, right? What what difficult things should I expect as I'm I'm uh, upgrading from Sprockets to Webpacker. I, I I know that we've had a couple of them. I asked you what the worst ones. You you mentioned jQuery and things like. Maybe what I really am getting at here is like, can you just kind of like summarize like I have my app on Sprockets. How what's the general path that I'm going to take to get to Webpack? Yeah, sure. In the article, I I explain what we did. Maybe it's not the best for everyone, but it worked for us. So we divided the upgrade in different type of assets that you need to move. For example, it's not the same if you have a third-party asset that if you have 
something that you built in or if you have an asset that comes from a gem, for example. For example, if you are using a gem like, I don't know, like Bootstrap, the, the Bootstrap gem, you may have some issues when migrating to Webpacker because you will need to, apart from the gem, to have the helpers that it provides, you will need Yarn node module package that provides the same things for, for Webpack because you will need the assets for Webpack in the, in the format that Webpack understands. And maybe you want some helpers that come from the gem. So you will need both. That's what you see in when you go from Rails 5 to 6. If you check the, you will have a yarn.package.json file. And it includes, for example, Rails UJS or TurboLinks. It includes JavaScript modules to do the same thing that you had in the gem. But it's that you, what you need for Webpack to understand. Because Webpack, at least from my experience, I couldn't make it read asset from a gem. It only knows about node modules or local folder, but it doesn't understand files in gems that are in your system installed, for example. It's something that you had in Sprocket. In Sprocket, you install a gem, and the gem can contain assets, and you use those. But you don't have that option for Webpack unless your gem is part of your project. So if you have I don't know, an app slash engines folder and you have some engines there, Webpacker can see those if you hard code the paths. But one, one issue you will have to search for the corresponding node module for that feature you want in that was maybe in a gem. If you were using I don't know, material design, jQuery, Rails, UJS, TurboLinks, all those things need to be migrated into, not migrated, but you will need complementary node module package to handle the same thing in Webpack. Uh, yeah, that's so. one of the, yeah. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So I think what you're saying basically is, all right, so uh, let's just use a couple simple gems here, right? Like I, I included the jQuery and Bootstrap gems. Maybe it was Bootstrap-Rails or jQuery-whatever it was, right? I had a gem that brought these libraries into my system, and previously... What they would do is they would hook all that stuff into the Sprockets pipeline for me. So what I need to do now is I want I still want jQuery and Bootstrap in my app or whatever. Now what I have to do is I need to add them via Yarn to my package, whatever my package.json, and then I need to make I need to go into my pack, whatever my Webpack pack is, whether it's my application.js pack or whatever, and then I need to basically import those JavaScript files from where Yarn installed them, probably my Node modules folder instead exactly. yeah exactly cool yep yeah one of the steps that we did was migrating adding rail ujs and also we migrated our own style guide we have a style a, a gem with a style guide that we use in our projects and we migrated that one to support to be used as a yarn model too okay so i got my to, to get us back onto the path sorry about that we migrated our gems or whatever that used to include jquery and bootstrap or whatever all those things so what do I do then next? I think what, what we were doing was, I mean, for example, when we migrated the, the, um, this gem, we started, we didn't, we didn't need the gem anymore because the Yarn package was already including the JavaScript and the CSS files. So you can also use the node modules folder for, your, for Sprockets. So you can change your configuration of Sprocket to search for assets in that folder too. So you don't need to have the gem and the node module. You can have only the module and 
get the CSS for sprockets on that folder and the JavaScript for your for Webpacker from that folder too. Uh, you won't have the helpers, right? You won't have the Ruby helpers that you may want from those gems. But if you don't have any helper, you can just use the module. And then let me think. Yeah, no, that, those are the main concerns that we had, like migrating jQuery, making things global, and migrating from gems to node modules. Once you have those set up, then it's just testing your application, running your tests, maybe take, doing like a real person testing the application. Make sure at least that the happy path works of your app. If it would be great if you have a, some way to track errors in your front end too, and you can report those just in case because it's easy to get the errors from the backend. But but since this all is in the browser, it's great if you have some kind of tracking system in your front end too. So you can at least find when something is failing because if nobody tested that and you don't have a reporting system, it may be failing for, I don't know, months and nobody noticed that. I think all the all the big ones seem to have that too, right? Like Bugsnag, Sentry. I haven't had to do Honey Badger or whatever, but yeah, uh, Rollbar does too. But yeah, I mean, they they all they all have like tutorials on like how to install it in your your pack, so it's fairly easy to get front end error handling. Yeah, fixed then up. the next step that we had to do was to update our CI configuration also because now it needs to get your Webpack compile the asset using Webpack, so you need Yarn and something like that. It wasn't that big change. It was just we use Circle CI usually in a lot of applications, so it already includes Node, Node and Yarn. So we were just calling Yarn install, but maybe you need to install Yarn in your servers, and we didn't do that. But if you want, you can then you can start moving CSS file or other files, I know images or whatever. I actually found a bug when trying that. If you want to handle images in your application, but in Spro with Webpacker, you can have your application.js file in the packs, and you can also have a pack called application.css, for example. If you have the application.css oh, file... Like, like, hang on, what, in the folder name or the file name? You can have a file... When you have the packs in the packs folder, you can have Java have a JavaScript file uh, packs, and you can also have CSS packs. I think that's something that Webpacker added. It's not part of how Webpack mm -hmm. works. But the, pro the thing is that if you have an application.css file there, so you see it like you will do with Sprocket, if you try to import images using Webpacker, it will fail. It won't. Interesting. Yeah, there, there's a bug report there. I, I report, I added some description in some bug. It was already found in Webpacker and I had some description there. But the solution is instead of doing this application.css pack, you go to your JavaScript file, and we go back to the beginning. You go to the JavaScript file, and you add import application.css. Hey. And that works. And then it works. It yep. works for CSS and images. Well, you, also, you also have to make sure that you hit the whatever. There's a flag in your webpacker.yml to make it extract CSS, I think, is what it's called, something like that. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's what I would. It's awesome. Glad you're talking about that. It's a big deal. Don't do the .css thing. Yeah, it's don't do that. At least for reason. now. At least for now, don't do that. <laughs> if you want images, don't do .css. No. Yeah, just uh, import your CSS and your images in your application.js, and yeah. then hit the extract CSS flag, and it will create an application.css for you, even though it doesn't have it listed in your packs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you'll get one, and then and then in your 
application.layout, you're going to have to do include style sheet pack tag or whatever it is. Yeah, uh, style sheet pack tag. Yeah. Or application. Yeah. Sweet. Okay. So any other sweet tips that you think that people should know? Yeah, I think at least coming from the from the background, having used Webpack to handle all the assets, I think the live reloading is a really nice feature that you may want when you are working with, an, at least with an application that's heavy in assets. Maybe you have a lot of CSS and JavaScript. If you use Webpacker only to handle the JavaScript, you can run that to have re live reloading, but it will only reload your page when you update JavaScript files, not when you update CSS files. So if you want to have live reloading for all your assets, you will have to move your CSS also to Webpack. And I think one thing I like to do, for example, in some project is like when I run the project, instead of running Rails S to run the server, I try to use, for example, Foreman to run Rails and also the Webpack dev server at the same time. So in one command, you run both things. So you have both server running, the Rails server and the web the Webpack server running. So you get the live reloading with one. So you don't need to upload to create two terminals, start two servers. You have one command that runs both for you and you have the Rails server running and the Webpack server running. That command probably involves a useful semicolon, which is a nice change when dealing with JavaScript. Yeah, yeah. And something another thing, I think sometimes, at least at the beginning, it was confusing for me. When you are using your application, you change something in your JavaScript, then you reload the page, it will compile the assets at that time, unless you are running the Webpack dev server. If you are running the Webpack dev server, it will run the, the compilation after it changed, and it will reload your page. So, Can we talk about the Webpack dev server for a minute? Because that is a, that is a brilliant piece of marketing by the Webpack team. What a fantastic uh, it, what a fantastic marketing coup. I was first confronted by this when I had to help someone out with Rails app. And they were complaining about build times. I thought, oh, that's not right. You shouldn't be waiting ages between a build. You know, it's a 20, what was it, 2021 now? It, it, you know, come on, it's, it, we're, we're, we're a decade in. Two decades in. So this I know this stuff is quick and they were like, oh, it takes 40 seconds to build the app. I was like, no, 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 no. So we, we got a webpack dev server going on their Rails project. It's the first time I use it. And I was editing the, the page and it was popping up live, you know, when you kind of like, you know, change the HTML and it moves over to the right. Oh, this is great. You know, I feel like feel like one of those hackers on an 80s movie movie now. And I was kind of rewriting this in front of people and I'm like, oh wow, that's really cool. But of course, later I, I I set it up myself, and it's not it's not Webpack doing that at all, is it? It's a live reload module. It's so all they've done is add live reload.js and then renamed it as Webpack Dev Server. This is the most outrageous, the most outrageous piece of rebranding I've ever seen. I mean, I mean, Webpack Dev Server does do a couple more things. <laughs> like... I, I, I think so. <laughs> Jeez. Maybe, but um, like I said, once you once you look under the hood, then it's always it's live reload all the way down. It's so, all it includes live reload, but I get it. Yeah, that's all it does. It's what does the work. <laughs> it does the work. Yes, so, yes. A Webpack Dev Server also does the compilation part, but and the Webpack part. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's got to do some stuff to pack some JavaScript, but you know that's how it knows. You know, it's how the, the, the page shaking knows. of the tree, as you called it earlier, it does yeah, that. the shaking of a tree. Yeah, whatever that is, some kind of ceremonial thing. The I 
I was I was shocked. If I was live reload, I'd be I'd be banging on their door saying, hang, hang on a second, hang on a second. All you're doing is building stuff, building files on a, on a laptop somewhere. We're the ones who are actually putting it down. So that was fun. But the reason I bring this up is because that's a really kind of cool developer experience. One of the uh, fast Ruby mainly deals with up, people upgrading it. And one of the biggest changes I had this year is dependabot on github have you seen the dependabot so this is this is a bot which sends you an annoying email anytime anyone commits some code in your company if you have notifications on repositories it basically fills your inbox saying that this python version is now insecure and stuff and you sit there thinking oh dear you know all of this awful you know and you end up upgrading everything don't you because dependabot won't won't stop telling you that your stuff's not upgraded so I wonder if this is kind of sending more customers your way that need help with Rails upgrades just because of Dependabot keeps emailing people. I, I don't have stats for that, but maybe it is. Maybe some people see that. Not, not all clients use GitHub for them, so they don't have all of them have Dependabot, but maybe there are some of them. I know. I will, I will say that the first, and you heard it here first, the first uh, software consultancy that manages to sponsor Dependabot yeah, that manages to get a little tag at the bottom of that email saying, having trouble upgrading this, why not give us a call? That's going to be absolute gold dust, GitHub. So, so uh, you know that you know that GitHub owns Dependabot, right? Right, but GitHub aren't going to help you upgrade the code, are they? No, but I feel like GitHub is sponsoring a, uh, or, or like letting someone sponsor Dependabot. Like, I don't know if people would be, might. You think they wouldn't accept that. enormous amounts of cash? Microsoft is a Mike. You're right. You're right. It's Microsoft. They, these guys have principles. <laughs> All right. So uh, I, I actually was was thinking about something as as we were going through this, and uh, you had mentioned uh, we were talking about CSS through this this process, and um, I know in your article you talk about it, and I've seen people over the years talk about it as well. Uh, the fact that you could, for example, choose to have Webpacker serve your JavaScript and have Sprocket serve your CSS. And that seems to be a pretty common solution. I've just kind of migrated on to doing Webpacker everything, but that's just kind of how I've just rolled. But like, can you talk about like maybe why you would make that choice? Why you would why you'd stick there in the middle? Are there any benefits to that, right? For the maybe the the Rails developer who's trying to I, I'm thinking I feel like the people who haven't switched on to Webpacker are the people who kind of have at least in their head, right? They're like mentally trying to decide if they should or not, right? I feel like the people who are super excited about Webpacker, they're on Webpacker already, and uh, they're they're not they're not picking at all. Like they they just they figured out how to work totally. The people that are left are the people that are still trying to decide if it makes sense for them. So why why would they pick maybe this path over over going all the way? And are there some problems with it or not? Yeah, I think like I said at the beginning, if you move to Webpack to handle your CSS files too, you have some plugins that may help you for your CSS. Like if you are, if you like Tailwind, you have like, I don't know, a plugin that will remove unused CSS. So you have smaller CSS files. The good thing with web, at least with modern projects, I've seen that import CSS, it's like SAS imports are used more than Sprocket require. So you can start already using, for example, if you don't want to migrate right away to, to Webpack, 
you can start using more SAS imports in your CSS files instead of the com required comment. And then when, if you already are using all SAS imports in your CSS, migrating that to Sprocket, to Webpacker, it should be really easy because it's already using the, the SAS import instead of something that's specific to Sprocket. And that should make things easier. I think like DHH setting one post, Sprocket is faster to compile the assets, but it's only affecting you if you care about the assets compilation phase during the deploy. It's just one small part of the, all the of your application. So if you want modern features like I don't know, removing unused CSS, I think moving to Webpack is something that is worth to try. It depends if your application has little CSS, just stay with Sprockets, right? If you, you don't need to make a complicated change to Webpacker if Sprocket is enough for what you need. Like I said, also thinking about other opportunities, yes, if at some point you need to, I know, add, create, have a big application that needs, I know, to add React to application. When you work on React, you want to handle everything in, in Webpack, for example. And if you start at least doing, you can, you can do some assets, some CSS in Sprocket and some CSS in Webpack too, if you want. I mean, it's an option. So the change doesn't need to be done like a complete change. You can migrate some things and see if you feel comfortable with that. But I think knowing how Webpacker, how to use Webpack, it's important as, a, as developers because like I said, Sprocket, I think Sprocket is not going to keep up with all the changes in the web standards. So trying to get that early on, the new ways of doing something, the new standards, things like that, I think helps everyone. Even if you are not super happy with Webpack, at least try it. That seems like super solid advice. Okay. Yeah, try it before you have to try it and then you'll hate it because it won't yeah. work. Yeah, maybe you can even start a new application from scratch and try some things. You don't need to migrate. It does work. Stuff. Yeah. It does work. It's just that like, a lot of people hit it and they're like, ah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've been there trying to migrate something that was in Sprocket, an application with, I don't know, six years of development, and then nothing worked because, yeah, you are trying to do everything at the same time. Yep, yep. I have I have been there. I've been there where uh, it wasn't it wasn't really clear what the path forward was. And then you're just like, all right, well, I think I need to fix this and this and this, and then suddenly you're done. I've been there. What do you think to say about moving from Webpack 4 to Webpack 5? I haven't tried that. I think there are some changes that you need to do. I saw there are some pull requests going on right now to support like reloading, for example. There was, it's not in, the, I think in the, in the master branch of Webpacker, you have some fix for that because live reloading was not working properly. So I didn't try to upgrade yet to that. So I'm still in Webpacker 4. Me too. I noticed there were some, some breaking changes, but I wasn't sure how to Webpack gem was handling them. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, I, I don't like to go straight to the newest version because I don't know if there are going to be issues, but I think Webpacker, at least Webpacker 4, it's already mature enough so you can handle your JavaScript and your CSS also with Webpacker. I think I had a, an unsuccessful foray a few months ago that made me think that I should just wait again. But I mean, I don't make new applications like every week or something. Like I, I make a few really? new applications. Really? We, we all do? Year. That's just you, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm just I'm solo over here, I guess. I, I mean I think it's a timing thing. Like sometimes 
you you're like all right i'm gonna make a new application this weekend you start it something doesn't work you kind of like abandon that gym for for this particular application and it might just be fine the next week but yeah you just miss the window that that happens occasionally so i i don't know i, I had an unsuccessful webpacker webpack five webpack or six foray a few months ago didn't work for me just had some just had some problems and then i you know i, I it wasn't a big deal i just shifted it back down to webpacker five uh in in fact i think that like i i want to say that webpacker six was not really technically ready for prime time at the time but i don't I don't know. That was a few months ago, and I've done a lot. You of tried things. to shake the tree, but the tree shook you. Yep, a pine cone fell on my head or something. So, all right, I have. Do we have any more webpack sprockets related or specific questions on your list, Luke? No. Okay, I wanted to back out and ask a question that's been bugging me because because it's a thing that I occasionally think of. But, um, what would you say in your experience is the worst Rails upgrade? You can't um, ask him. You can't <laughs> ask him what the worst Rails app he's ever seen is. That's an outrageous question. No, 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 no. That's not what I asked. That's not what I asked. I said, um, "What was the worst?" Okay, so yeah, sorry. I meant. I realized I could be taken in multiple ways. I didn't necessarily meant it, what customer's app was the worst. What I meant was okay. uh, what uh, version of Rails to version of Rails like was the worst uh, version upgrade. Sorry, that that you can recall. Yeah, I think the the hardest one was from Rails 2.3 to 3.0 because there were many changes there. Usually when you go after 3, you see that there are some things that didn't change that much. So there are, there are some breaking changes. Like, I know, sometimes you need to add uh, strong parameters or you need to change some methods are deprecated. But you usually get like nice messages, uh, nice messages and you also have the Rails guides to help you, the release notes. But if you go to the Rails website, you don't have a guide to upgrade from 2.3 to 3.0. There's no guide for that. So we had some guide that we made over the years. But I think that's the, the main issue because we don't have the official way to do that. We are doing what we no, see it's working. But for all the other upgrades, you at least have some guideline from the own the from the official the, the Rails team. They tell you, okay, to upgrade from this version to this version, you make sure you do things, but they don't have that one from 2.3 to 3.0. And yeah, I think that's it. And also changing Ruby versions, at some point you may need to change from 1.9 to 2.0. And there are some changes that you have to take care of. When you start, when you are already in Ruby, in Ruby 2 and Rails 3 point something, the upgrades are a, bit, are a bit smoother there because there's no many breaking changes in the 2.x Ruby version. And from Rails 3, 2, and on, you don't have that many big changes. You have big changes, but at least you have documentation for that. That's fair, yeah. The ones the ones that I think of are obviously from 1 to 2. And then, yeah, 2, 3, two, three to 3 was, was is the one that I always think is the hardest of all. And then the second hardest for me has always been like either, I can't remember if it was 3.0 to 3.1 or 3.1 to 3.2, whichever one added sprockets. That's the one. It was the second hardest. I always felt like. Yeah, I think it was from three one to three two. That way, the other sprockets. So, yeah, awesome, awesome. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But I mean, at least it's something that you can discuss with the client if they really want. To. I mean, we suggest moving that. So maybe the clients don't want to spend the time migrating that. Maybe they don't have. Maybe they say, "Oh, we were using assets in public, so why do we need to to use up asset pipeline?" 
we suggest them to use that, <laughs> but I know it's up to the client then if they want to do that. That client is always right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> Sometimes they don't know what they want. Public JS is the best JS. Yeah, oh, but I mean, it, it involves spending money. It, it takes time. So maybe they say, oh, let's not do that right now. Let's only do the upgrade of the version. And then at some point we do the migration to Sprockets. Yes. Uh, yes. Maybe, I don't know, maybe right now somebody said, oh, but when we get to Rails 6, we will move to Webpacker. Oh, let's try to make Webpacker work with Rails 3. No. <laughs> yes, the important I, I, that, thing that is that, a problem. Yeah, the important thing is your client tells you what their constraints are. They should not have a vote on whether it stays in the public folder or not. That's that's yeah, your job yeah. to figure out if that's the right answer or not. Yeah, uh, but I mean, if if you have the constraint of okay, we don't want to spend three weeks on making this. Okay, yeah. it's going to stay in the public. I mean, yeah, that's what I mean. That's what yeah. I mean. They they should tell you that. I guess if no, you had a super sometimes client. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes we have clients that even sometimes we we have one developer on their end working with us. So they have some technical people working there and make, maybe the technical person makes the decision of, of what needs to be changed. And we help them doing that. But yes. it's usually great when we have someone on their team working with us or at least being there as a developer in that we can have as a contact to work with because they know like the questions we ask. If you ask something that's technical, they know the answer. They are not, oh, we are not sure maybe you can come up with something. They, they know if they have some technical people. Definitely. Do we have? Did we have any more questions, Luke? Before we moved on into picks, what's the worst client app you've ever seen? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, you're giving me giving me grief for asking what you thought was that question. Now you get to ask it. <laughs> no, no, no. Let me let me rephrase in some way. What was the most? Uh, you've already kind of answered the rails. There was two point three to three as the most challenging upgrade path. But do you have any any stories about a particularly challenging? project you worked on where you you thought you got a really good outcome from it right now we are working with a client that has one of the biggest i think monoliths in the usa and it's a really big upgrade and i think it involves a lot of things that you need to do like you work with different engines that they work with they have a really really big team we are helping them to do upgrades and you learn a lot of things from those clients that are really big and usually when they are all, you learn a lot of things too of, I don't know, ideas that were done before that may, oh, I understand why we don't do that anymore, for example. I think the, the main problem sometimes is if the client is not responsive enough, but usually the clients are, are there. We try to manage like a weekly, maybe even daily calls with the clients. So they are there for us if we need something. We have worked with really big companies and small companies too. So we have seen a lot of things. We've seen companies doing super weird setups and custom gems to handle things that maybe are not needed anymore. We have seen companies doing, uh, I know, like 100, like 90 engines being run inside the application, for example. And it also makes you think, okay, how, how is this working? Because they have 80 or 90 engines that are loaded at gems in the application, for example. And yeah, you, there's a lot of things in, in the upgrades. And we also have companies that they have I know, a pretty standard release application with super standard gems. And they are just, a lot, they have a lot of application uh, and they need to, need to upgrade that. And they don't have the power, the main power to do that. But they have a standard application that, yeah, it's a, something that we are used to see. I know they have the, the gems that you see everywhere. 
it must be it must be a fascinating fascinating job to look behind the curtain and see, yeah, I, I think, see everyone's uh because these are all these are all going to be profitable applications no one's going to pay you to upgrade something that's not making money so it must be fascinating to see what the real world looks like yeah and it's it's amazing to see different ideas to solve the same issues sometimes uh, and old ideas and what some people came up and you get to see, I know, if they are using different tools, I know, for CI. We, we also work with them on their CI environments, on their deployment environments. So we get to learn a lot of things, not just from the race application, but also from, I know, their infrastructure, things like that. So that helps us a lot on for other clients, right? So we can make new suggestions to other clients. It's, it's amazing, yeah. You learn a lot of things. Definitely. All right. Well, let's roll on into picks then. Uh, but before we roll into picks, actually, Ariel, if people want to get in touch with you or, you know, read more of your articles or whatever, how do they do that? Yeah, I write articles for our two companies, Ombu Labs. It's O-M-B-U-L-A-B-S, labs.com. Uh, and for fastruby.io. And we have blogs, blogs for the, both websites. And that's where I write. And on Twitter, I'm Ariel J-U-O-D like my first four letters of my last name. I was good enough to not put my whole last name there because nobody would find me anyway. Anyway, so I just put Ariel, Ariel Huad. And yeah, there. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks for speaking to us, Ariel. Let's yeah. roll on into picks then. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Luke, do you have do you have some awesome picks this week for us? I do have some awesome picks, possibly old news to some. But I was looking at the Planet Ruby list of uh, books their GitHub page, which is just a big list of, of up-and-coming and available Rails books. Fun list. It's got the usual suspects on there and a couple of others which I didn't know about. The other, which has just come out, is the Rails Comp Talks have just been uploaded. Have you, have you seen the Rails Comp Talks? Uh, of course you have. Well, I'm, I haven't got too far through them. Uh, the ones I've enjoyed so far have been... Uh, get it right, Luke. Get it right. Josh, what's the guy's name? Talking. Oh dear, can't remember. Well, the one I the one I remembered, of course, was a former co-host Coraline's talk at RailsConf about ethics in code. Uh, that's that's a good talk. I mean, that's a, that's a good talk. Fascinating talk. Goes into some really interesting historical issues about software development and, of course, the stuff she's campaigning to get done. Uh, so that's my other pick is Coraline's talk at RailsConf just come out on YouTube. Nice. Yeah, I think I just saw the email this morning or whatever about that. So 
I don't remember if it actually came in this morning or if I'm just late to the party, but so, okay. Yep. I have a couple picks as well. I've got uh, one. So I guess since rails bump is back up, I need, or yeah, I need to, I need to actually plug that. So, I mean, when I've upgraded apps in the past, I mean, just being able to find a reference uh, that is more or less I don't know, uh, consistent or whatever that tells me like this gem and this gem version are going to work on this rails and this that's super helpful when you're going through a list of hundreds of gems uh, so i've mostly worked on like large legacy applications in my career and so you know as you can imagine gem files are huge i'm gonna, I'm gonna going... stop you there john <laughs> i'm gonna stop you there and it's a it's a good question to have while we have Aaron on at what point at what point does something become a legacy application what's what's the line rails rails 2.3 rails beta you know where is the line for a legacy application and my my other question a very important question is why are we calling them legacy applications when in the car world we call them as a modern classic yeah i, I don't think i don't know if there's right definition for legacy but i i lead, i think of legacy as something that's not maintained by the real maintainers like Rail 4, so it's it doesn't have security updates or anything. At least for me, that's a legacy application because the actual creator of that thing are not maintaining that anymore. Yeah, I think yeah, that's so, kind so, of sorry, John, you, in my mind. You're yeah. telling us about your classic code. Yes, yes. So the classics, the Rails classics. Yeah. Um, uh, no, that's I think that's how I would define it too, right? Because I kind of feel like if you're on Rails 5, it's unclear whether or not you're you're not maintaining your code or whatever it's not it's not clear from just knowing that you're on rails 5 but rails 4 and below 4 and below like you've had a lot of time at this point yeah. so yeah usually usually that's neglect whether that's because you don't have the manpower or you've just consistently made the choice that we'll do that tomorrow so but yeah anyway so I, those, that's the kind of app that i've worked on over the years for the most part and so anyway that's that's just what i'm used to doing and anyway so the point is Rails bump, or I don't remember what it was called before it was Rails bump, but whatever. This this site, or whatever that everyone used to link to, to go check out your gems and see which ones has always been an awesome tool for me. And it was down for like I don't know, like six months a year maybe, while while I was being remade. Um, and the fact that it's up is just fantastic. Even if it's not perfect yet, whatever, I've missed it. So hopefully you guys will love it too. So that's pick number one. Pick number two this week for me, has, I've done a, a whole ton of yard work and man, I'm not going to lie. So I have a fairly large backyard. I don't know. It's not huge, huge, but like it's an acre roughly. So it's it's actually a little over an acre, but it's a lot of land and there's and I'm surrounded by forest. So as you can imagine, I'm encroached by both trees everywhere, as well as lots of poison ivy and, you know, other green things that are obviously allergy inducing to me and possibly like the kid comes over and gets like poison ivy nobody wants that right so you know you gotta even if you aren't trying to go for lawn of the year you still have to t maintain it otherwise sounds like know. a matter of survival really yeah yeah for, for me yeah yeah so so my front yard i do try to keep like nice but my philosophy in the backyard is i just want to keep it claimed from the forest right that's my thought there and then i just want to make sure that no kid comes through and gets poison ivy and then their mom is upset at me or my wife right like those are those are my design philosophies for my yard right so, but it takes, it takes me a while to get this done, especially, especially the first few times every year, 
because not only do I have to like go clip all the trees back so that, you know, I don't whack my face while I'm mowing the edge of the yard, uh, you know, and things like this, but also got to like deal with the poison ivy as well as edge all the grass that's at the, the edge of the yard and things or figure out what I'm going to do for that year. Right. And we have little blackberry thorn bushes and you really don't want to weed whack those because then they're just like little spiky things that are just like thrown flung across your yard and then your like kid finds them yeah exactly anyway so there's a lot of things you got to figure out right and uh anyway i've just been very very pleased i i actually have had this for like a couple years and i just pulled it out like uh, over the past couple weeks and i've just been very very happy with with my like gas weed whacker which i feel like is so environmentally unfriendly but like it takes me three hours to like take care of my yard and there aren't there aren't electric weed whackers yet that do that also there aren't electric weed whackers that can take super thick weed whacker string which i also have to have because like half the things that i'm chopping down are trees like that are already a half inch thick so anyway i guess i guess what i'm getting here is like i'm i'm definitely recommending that when you are deciding to do probably not everyone has a gigantic yard or if you have a larger yard than me, you probably have even more awesome tools like a writing, like you probably have a tractor or something and you can just like bushwhack it down or something. But when you're kind of in the in-between, you still have to do it by hand. Like these these power tools are like pretty awesome, you know. I just, I literally buy Husqvarna because there's a Husqvarna shop like down the road for me. And that, so I, I am... I'll just keep buying them because then I can just go take it into the old guy who will repair all my stuff if it breaks. But yeah, I don't know. I bought it and I've been very happy with it. And I definitely, if you are taking care of your yard, definitely recommending go go buy this. Yeah, whatever. Just pick what, what makes sense for you. Ariel, do you have anything for us? Yeah, I've been working. I know if it's okay if I share my own work, but I've been creating this Absolutely. I always had the, this idea to have a like a wizard to create race applications instead of just running rails new dash h to see the help. I miss that. I, I try with when you use view, when you create a new view application, for example, it's guide it guides you for different things that you may want. It asks you if you want to, I don't know, Cypress, TypeScript, things like that. So I'm creating this application. Right now it's called Rails New App because I'm just trying things that you start you install this gem you run one command and it will ask you different things that you want to add and maybe you can add i don't know a simple code i don't know simple form some javascript framework different tools to your application and then when you finish you review what you selected and it creates the application for you with the tools you want it's not just setting the flags of your rails new application it's it's also adding tools and for example yeah i i add Right now, it's working, but it's not super full of features. But you can create an application that has, I don't know, Minitest or RSpec, that has simple code, that has, I don't know, some Rails framework, some form builders, some... I plan to add CSS frameworks, things like that. So you can create a new application and start from all this setup. Instead of setting things manually or using Rails templates, you just run this command. You select everything you want in your application and you finish, and that will create the application for you. Sounds like it's going to put a lot of junior developers out of work. <laughs> I hope not. I mean, it's uh, leveraging the Rails templates already, and there's a lot of Rails templates for these projects. So 
the idea is to, to use that to create new applications, to make it easier to add things. I know I plan to add device, all the popular gems, pagination, all those things already set up for you. So you can focus on the application itself, right? Not adding tools. Is someone already got create Rails app? I don't know. I that saw the be... one. There's one uh, railsnew.io, but it only creates, it sets you the flags or some templates. But I want this to be more like interactive with, so you run the command in the console, right. you have everything there. And I plan to add documentation, some ideas of what is, what you're saying, looking there. But yeah, I tried, the idea is to, to help developers create a new application so they don't need to worry about the tools. They need to worry about the application itself. So they know they need some things. They start the application, they run the command, they create the application and it's running. That's very cool. Right now it's working. It's missing features, of course, because it's uh, like a second version I released. But yeah, it's working. At least for, for the things I trial, you can create a new application with some selections and that's it. It works. Awesome. All righty. Well, thanks for joining us this week, Ariel. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, it's my Absolutely. first time in a podcast and I'm not good at public speaking, but I like this podcast environment. It's not the same. It's all good. We, it's we're, all not, good. we're not public. <laughs> we're not public. And then, and then we're the rogues. <laughs> <laughs> all righty well thanks for coming ariel it was oh, awesome thank you. talking to you thank you all righty take care everybody have a great week and we'll see you next time bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit dot com to learn more